Matthew 7, starting in verse 7, says this. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good to your excuse me, good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, I think we could all say that surely no one ever understood prayer or exercised prayer to the degree that the Lord Jesus did. And to extend that truth further, no one is currently understanding prayer and no one is currently exercising prayer to the extent or the degree that the Lord Jesus is right now as he always lives to make intercession for his people. It seems interesting that in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at all three chapters, you see that Jesus speaks on the subject of prayer not once, but twice. Adultery, once. Divorce, once. Uh, Murder, once. All these things that seem to be such big things that we would think you would expound upon more and more and more. He speaks to these once. He speaks to prayer twice in the Sermon on the Mount. And due to the fact that uh, both Jesus' expertise on the matter as well as his concern for the subject of prayer among his followers, we're compelled, I think, to learn and to listen. Matthew Henry wrote in the opening statement of his commentary concerning these verses, Our Savior in the foregoing chapter had spoken of prayer as a commanded duty by which God is honored and which, if done aright, shall be rewarded. Here he speaks of it as the appointed means of obtaining what we need, especially grace, to obey the precepts he had given, some of which are so displeasing to flesh and blood. And I believe Matthew Henry is right. Here in chapter 7, Jesus extends his teaching on prayer so as to instruct his disciples how to obtain all they need, including the grace to obey all the commandments that he's given them. As he does, it becomes painfully obvious that one of the areas that we need to pray for this grace the most in is that of prayer itself. I've discovered that this week as I went through this. I found myself confronted with the truth that I think one of the things I need to pray the most for or one area that I need to pray for the most grace in is my prayer life. I've been convicted by this teaching as I've studied it and I have to admit that my prayer life, while I at times think it is uh, rich and full and robust, has really only fallen horribly short of what God demands. So many of us, if we honestly examine ourselves, we'll have to say the same tonight. As we submit ourselves to the teaching of our Lord tonight, I hope many will feel a need for repentance because I think really when we look at this, that's going to be the only real right response we can have. Within these verses, Jesus prescribes the cure for our pitiful, powerless prayer lives. And he does so by exposing the discharge of our uncleanness in prayer. Perhaps this is brought on by some uh, settling in of a, a habitual praying recited or a, a habitually praying a recited prayer that we've sculpted for ourselves over years. I know I've fallen into that at times. Have you ever gone through a period of time where you kind of, Russell, you, you study the Word and you realize all these things you want God or God wants you to pray for? So you start praying for those things and then over time without you even knowing it, Chad, you kind of start thinking, okay, that's a pretty good 
early morning prayer right there. And you keep praying for those same things because you, those yes are the right things to pray for. But what happens over time, you just fall into a rut of praying the exact same prayer. And for long, you can pretty much pray that prayer and ask for those things and your mind can be totally disengaged, right? Your heart's not really stirred. You're not passionate about it. You are just reciting what has become to you almost a vain recitation, right? That doesn't hit the mark of what God wants for us and what God wants for you in prayer. But I think that can happen to all of us. I know it's happened to me at times. And maybe we'll see the mocking laziness in our prayers by which we test God or the defiant selfishness that has found its lair within our solicitations to God. I think we may see all these things as we go through this tonight if we really lay our heart on the altar and let God shine his light of truth and expose the things that are really there. So let's get to it. We read in verse 7 that Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Here we're given both commands and conditional promises. We are commanded to ask and seek and knock. Most of us stop where? We stop at asking. Most of us stop at asking. However, the command is to seek and is to knock. And by seek and knock, it's implying that there's something more than just asking. If it wasn't more, he would have just said ask and he would have stopped. But Jesus adds, you ask, you seek, and you knock. There's got to be something more. You see, asking refers to the acknowledgement that we have a need that we cannot meet, but God can. Seeking speaks to our efforts in obedience to God's commands concerning the subject of our asking, yes, and even that of God himself. As the psalmist wrote, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. There's a tie here where in our asking we also seek by giving our obedience as a tie into it. And knocking refers to our boldness and long-suffering in our petitioning of God for Him to hand out His graces to us. In a sense, knocking is, is the coming together of the asking and the seeking in a prolonged and at times fevered pitch. Now, I will say this right here. I think this may challenge us, and, and I want everybody to listen to me real quickly. If you don't do this, as we go through this, if you see, well, my prayer life does not look that way. If you see, well, my prayer life is not that fervent or it's not that lively, if it's not that vital, if it doesn't own me and consume me to the degree that Jesus is saying that it should, I don't want you to freak out and start necessarily losing assurance over it or something. But what I do want you to do is be real enough to say, hey, this is an area that I desperately need repentance in. Don't go off the deep end with it because I think it is going to challenge us. But at the same time, please be open to being called out and being shown how much we do not measure up by this. Because again, in Jesus' teaching, this is a major facet of the Christian life. One that we cannot really live the Christian life the way we should without being grounded in the subject of prayer as he teaches it. So we're commanded to ask and then seek. James writes of the faith of Abraham saying, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. We too, you and I, must support our prayers with our efforts. Would you ask God to give you something and then not even lift your finger to try to help attain it? God gives wisdom to those who ask for it 
and then search the scriptures and turn into the house of wisdom to eat the bread that wisdom has prepared and drink the wine that wisdom has mixed for those who would come to her. God gives power against sin to those who make a habit of fleeing from sin and fight to kill it in their own life. But he does not do that for those who willfully walk into sin with no thought of ever fighting against it. Also, we ask and we knock. Jesus commands his followers to go to God's door and bang on the door. A lot of us don't think about that as being the way our prayer life should look. We almost have a timidity that we hide behind some churchy religious veil of piety. Jesus never taught such an attitude for children of God concerning their father when they're in need. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and even tears. And our master will settle for no less from his people. He patterned what he would have us do. If Christ in the days of his flesh cried out with loud cries and tears, would it not make sense he would call us and expect us and desire us to do the same? Yes. It may be optional in your mind, and it may be optional in my mind to have a prayer life that looks like that. It's just not optional in his mind. We must ask and we must wrestle with God, refusing to let go until he blesses us. God has not given us a spirit of timidity with which to approach him. A Bible verse, Russell, that we memorize in, in vacation Bible school all the time. God has not given you a spirit of... Some of you are very afraid right now. You didn't answer. Fear or timidity, right? But of power, love, and a sound mind. He's not given us a spirit of timidity even when we approach him. He's not, we've not uh, been given a spirit of bondage. So that we fear, but what do we do? We cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Abba, Father. If he has not given us a spirit of timidity, he surely has not given us, in approaching him, a spirit of apathy either. We are to be those who bombard the doors of heaven with our prayers. He commands that we honor our king, priest, and prophet, Jesus, as we with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We must note here that the verb tense that Matthew uses as he writes these verses in chapter 7, the verbs ask, seek, and knock, or in the present progressive form. I think the amplified version probably records it best. It says, keep on asking and it will be given you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking reverently and the door will be open to you. Jesus is commanding his followers to keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. You've heard Brother Kyle preach about that. One reason for this teaching, one reason for this encouragement is to keep knocking, keep asking, keep seeking. Why? Because our Lord knows that we're not always going to get an instant answer the first time we say it, but we should in no way show a lack of faith or a drawing back from our Father just because He doesn't do things on our timetable and in our way. We keep seeking and keep asking and keep knocking and we never lose heart. Why? Because Christ alone has the words of eternal life. Where else are you going to go? If you really grasp just how unable you are to meet the first single need 
of your life without the active, immediate, functional power of God in your life, you will say, where else can I go? Let me tell you something. I think Paul Washer said it one time. I'll quote him because he's greater than I. He said, at one point in time, I used to think I could not preach without the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I've grown to know God, I realize I cannot tie my shoes without the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do anything without the power of God moving in our life. The only reason we don't ask for more is because we don't really understand just how low and how powerless we truly are on our own. I think we forget that without Christ, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And I need not remind you, dead things don't do anything that could amount to any kind of production. Jay, if you had a dead teacher sitting behind the desk, would anybody be learning? No. I'm sure you have some that you think it might be the case some days, but you have no one would be learning. If you have a dead guard dog in the yard, it does not bark. You can be robbed. And if you have a dead prayer life, nothing happens. Also, he says that we should keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking so that we will not become too easily satisfied. Now, God desires, here's one thing we miss, God desires to pour out better and greater things for you than you have ever thought to ask him for. I want you to think about that just a minute. What if God would open your mind to think of bigger things to ask for than you've ever asked for? I'm not talking about some kind of heretical name it and claim it theology. I'm talking about how many of us wake up in the middle of the night and we legitimately think, God, will you please bring 15 people that I personally know to Christ in the next month? And you really believe it's going to happen. I don't think we do that too often because we're so closed-minded. And I think the reason we're so closed-minded is because we're too easily satisfied. I don't think we feel an urgency to even think for bigger things to ask for. We are commanded to keep seeking and keep asking and keep knocking because God is not going to let us be too easily satisfied. He wants to pour out more on you than you've been thought to ask Him for. But we forgo these blessings often because we're too quickly satisfied. First of all, Perhaps we're too easily satisfied and we lose fuel for prayer because the tank of our desire is too small. And we fail to long deeply and greatly enough so as to present God with the opportunity to glorify Himself by performing a thing in your life greater than the last. God does a great thing in our life. How long do we try to ride on that? A month? A year? A lifetime? You prayed for one of your friends to get healed. He healed him, and that's what you're sitting on for the next 20 years? Really? Is God's arm so short he can't do that every day? Is God's arm so short and his goodness so small that he can't do great things in your life every day? Is his desire for you so small that he does not long to do great things in your life and through your life Every day you, the one that he gave the prince of heaven to spill out his perfect blood for? You don't think he wants more in your life than what you're experiencing right now? There's so much more. Our minds are so small. Our desire is so weak. 
And therefore, we are so empty. He wants to do greater things than he's done before. Also, maybe we become too quickly satisfied because the nature of God's blessings do not suit our tastes. When you've asked for increased holiness and your Father blesses you with discipline, does your desire begin to dwindle because you wanted the taste of the sweet embrace and instead he gave you the salty reproof? It easily happen in any of our lives. Is that why we are so easily satisfied? Because we don't really want the way he answers. And we don't recognize his way as being so much better than anything we could conceive in our minds, even if it doesn't look like it on the front end. Where is our trust? I think about this in my life, and I think so many times Jesus must have blessed me and had to bless me with the words, oh, you have little faith. You just don't trust that I'm doing you the best turn I can do you. Are you the same? Here, Jesus supplies us with what we need to obey in continuing to ask and seek and knock. We can do this. Listen, you're sitting in this seat right now and you're thinking, you may be thinking, I can't do this. I can't measure up this. Yes, you can do this. We can put out this effort to fa- in the face of any temptation, any doubt, any frustration you may be feeling right now, any apathy you may be feeling right now, any indifference you may be feeling right now, any weakness or laziness or fatigue or powerlessness that you may be feeling right now. Yes, you can ask and keep asking and seek and keep seeking and keep on knocking. Why? Because of the faith in God's promise that you've been granted. If we do what we're commanded to here, He will hear and He will answer. That's what we've been promised and that's what we believe, right? We believe that if we ask, He hears. If we pray to our Father, He hears. We're promised that if we ask, we will be given. We will not be lent to or sold to. We'll be given to as a gift. The promise stands to accuse many of us because we have so little in our lives in terms of the Spirit. If you had to do a catalog of your life right now, if you had to do inventory of your spiritual life right now, how bare would the shelves of your warehouse be? How little would be the fruit? How little would be the desire? How small could your storehouse, spiritually speaking, be and still contain everything that you've packed in it? I think this is why. You see, what I do not really count as worth having, I will not ask for, and then I won't have it. Or to put it another way, why do you have no more spiritual fruit than you have? You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. I do not have because I do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Why do we not see greater moves of the Spirit in our life, in our family's lives? Why do we not see revival here in our church and in our community and in our school and on our jobs? Why do we not see God helping us live with more of an open hand and not clutch every single dollar that passes through as if we'll never see another one? Why do we not have within ourselves a hunger and a desperation to pray more and more throughout the day to study the Scriptures? Why do we not have more of a desire for God to come into our devotion time every day and nail a us with the truth to, to, uh, to put it in a country way jerk a knot in our neck with the truth of the gospel why because we don't ask for that we don't have it because we don't ask for it 
And when we do ask for it, we ask for it wrongly. We seek God with all our heart, and we're promised to find Him. We can find energy and focus to do this because we know that we will be totally satisfied in Him when we find Him. As we grow in obedience, we discover Him more and more. That's what Brother Tony was talking about this morning. I know in the first column on the left of the first page of the notes, I remembered, I have it underlined, I thought this is so good, this is so simple, yet it's so powerful. It's exactly what we all need to hear every single day. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This eating and drinking is another way of saying that Jesus abides in us and we in him. When you eat him in, he becomes part of what? You. There, and he is more powerful than you. He does not assimilate to you. You are assimilated to him. When he invades your life, he makes you part of the body of Christ. He does not become part of the body of Brian or the part of the body of Jay or part of the body of Chris. We become part of the body of Christ. When he invades us, we're the one that is changed. So this eating and drinking of Christ means that he abides in us and thereby we abide in him. I think to say it another way would be the way Jesus said in John 15, 10. He said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in His love. How do we seek Him? We obey Him in the small things and the big things. This promise of future satisfaction should propel us to seek Him through obedience, saying daily to God, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. If we knock on the door to find mercy and love, it will be opened. It was once closed to us because we were what? We were enemies. At one point in time, we were enemies of God. We were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. We were alienated from God. We had no nation to call our own except for this demoralizing, falling world that is a sinking ship waiting to hit the bottom. But what happened now, if we are children of God, if we come in faith as a friend, trusting that the door will be open to us, then we can trust that it will be opened. If the door is not open at first, at the first knock, we need to do what we do at the door of our best friend or even our parents' home. We knock again, right? If I go to my mother and father's house in the middle of the night because I have a flat tire on the side of the road, I know my dad's asleep. I know my mom's asleep. I know, dad, I know Mike Means is going to be grouchy if I wake him up. I know he's going to come to the door wearing camouflage pants with a gun in his hand. But you know what? When I knock the first time... And nobody comes, I knock again, and nobody comes, and I knock again, and I pick up the cell phone, and I start texting just so I can say I texted before I made it ring, but I immediately start calling as soon as the text starts going through, and I call, and I knock, and I bang, I call, I knock, I bang, I go to every door around the house, I beat on the windows, I do everything short of setting the place on fire. Because I know that eventually he's going to wake up. He's going to come to the door. And regardless, even though he's a fallen, broken human man that will be gruff and irritated at my impunity there, he is still going to come to the door. And what's he going to do? He's going to fix my tire. I know that because I'm his son. And if I can trust a fallen, broken, wicked human to that degree, how dare I offend God who has commanded me to treat him this way. He's commanded me to come to his door daily in exactly that way. 
How dare I test him in not doing it and then might expecting that he's still going to give me what I need. He may do it, but it's not without me having tested him and offending him. It offends God as it offends any parent or true friend when we knock once and then leave just because they were completing a task or did not answer the door immediately. I think it's noteworthy here that no particular time is given for knocking on God's door. He doesn't say at 8 a.m. in the morning. He doesn't say uh, like the Muslim would say seven specific times throughout the day you can talk to God. Don't approach God other than that. These are the times that God is available for you. He leaves it open. Why? He wants us to do it how often? Well, he says pray without ceasing. Stay instant in prayer, right? Stay constant in prayer. Pray all the time. He gives no time for our knocking. It is always time to knock on the door of your father if you come to him desperate and begging and trusting. To the Jewish crowd that Matthew wrote to in the first century A.D., this might very well mean that a friend would bang upon the door in the middle of the night. Luke gives that example in this context of this teaching uh, in chapter 11 of his gospel. During this time of, of history, families all slept together, the parents and the children in a single room at night. And if the father of the family were to get up in the... I know, Chad, it'd be rough in y'all's house. Y'all got a room big enough. I saw Jennifer and Chad look at each other and Chad went, uh-uh. The mom and dad would be in the room. The kids would be out in the pasture. During this time, though, that's what families did. And if a dad got up in the middle of the night and lit a lamp and started scrounging around to grab some bread or something that his friend might need, what's going to happen? Everybody in the house is going to wake up. The kids that are maybe Kale's age or Miranda's age and Melody's age, the 9, 10, 11-year-olds, they're going to get up doing what? Asking a million questions that you have no desire to answer. What are the teenagers going to do? Get up crying and whining because they woke them up. What are the babies going to do? Get up crying and whining because you woke them up. What's your spouse going to do? I'll let you answer that. But it's going to wake everybody up if he gets up to meet the need of the friend that's banging on the door and won't stop in the middle of the night. However, God commands that we come to Him in this way. Think about that a minute. God's saying, even you earthly people know that if somebody just bangs, 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 bangs on the door, it's going to disrupt things on the other side of the door. It's going to, it's going to be inconvenient because your banging is going to wake up the children. You're going to mess up the sleep of somebody else. And he doesn't say, so in light of that, come to me in a gentle way. Come to me in a timid way. Come to me in an understanding way. Just understanding that even though I'm a God who does not become weak or weary, you should reverence me as if I did. He doesn't say that. He says, bang on my door, child. That's not a request. That's a command from a loving father. Yes, but that is a command. You bang on my door. I think the point here is that he wants us to force the issue. I think the point is that he wants us to understand his heart toward us so that we feel comfortable in knowing we're right in forcing the issue. If I keep knocking, then I wake everybody up. If he gets up, he wakes everybody up. We're, we're to force the issue as if to say, answer the door or I'll keep knocking until the entire family is awakened. 
We are to come to our Father so desperately and with such sense of need that we shamelessly force the issue until He answers. We're... Not that we can strong-arm God, but He wants us to be so bold with Him and so ready to come to Him, just totally knowing we're going to be completely accepted because of the sacrifice of Christ and because of the steadfast love of this God that we claim to know, that we're going to go bang on the door and pretty much put, if it was a human, put Him in the situation. Your kids are waking up one way or the other. Either you're going to get up and wake them up or I'm going to wake them up and then you'll get up and meet my need anyway. We're supposed to come with that kind of desperation. That kind of forcefulness to the door of God. And we're guaranteed that God will hear and answer when we ask rightly. Um, 1 John says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. In order to cash in on this promise, we must see God as Jesus presents Him to us. We can't have a uh, caricature of God in our mind as we study the Scriptures and we develop our own likeness of God that we're comfortable with. We've got to see God the Father as Jesus presents him. Why? Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We have to look at the presentation Jesus gives. Jesus says in verses 9 and 11 of Matthew 7, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If we have saving faith in the Son, then he says to us in his ascension, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. I'm ascending to my God and your God. Think about that a minute. If you have saving faith in Christ, Jesus said to you, though eons in the past, He said to you today, because His Word is always active and living, it'll never pass away. He says, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, Jane. My Father and your Father. My God, your God. How should we see God? God has made Himself a Father to us. And God has created fathers in this life so that we could know our relationship with Him. God did not create Adam and Eve and tell them to be fruitful and multiply and then say, oh, Adam's a father, I can use that. It's the other way around. God said, I'm going to show my people who I am to them and I'm going to create the position of father so that they'll know. I'm going to make, it's just like he created marriage on the front end to be the representation of Christ's relationship with the church. He created fatherhood so that we would be able to see our relationship with God the Father. Though all our earthly fathers are depraved as the corrupt offspring of fallen Adam, they still love their children to some degree. Now hear me. Though fathers fall short of loving their children, excuse me, to varying degrees, some falling far shorter than the best of us. All fathers are evil in their very nature and can only love their children in a way that is laced with evil. I say that because some of us in here have had wonderful fathers that we just hold on a pedestal and think are just as close to Christ as they can possibly be. And others of us in here have had a relationship with our earthly father that may be far short of anything resembling our relationship with our father God. Some in here have been abandoned. Some in here have been abused. Some in here have been thrown to the side. Some have been neglected. Some have been crushed. Some have been doted on too much by their earthly fathers. 
The point is not that we look at our fathers and say God is just like that, but the point is, is that God gives us some representation so that we can have some idea of what it's supposed to look like. God created the office of the father so that all who have ever been a child can grasp the concept of his fatherhood over us. If we look especially at the best of the fathers on earth, though they be wicked by nature, they give their children good things. If a child asks his father, his father excuse me, for bread or a fish to calm his hunger and to give him the strength he needs, will his father give him a stone to break his teeth on or a snake that will put him to death? Mike, if one of your 15 children asked you for a sandwich, are you going to give him a rock and say, here, chew on that? Mike says no. Now, he said that for two reasons. First of all, because he knows it's the right answer. Second of all, he knows he's got to pay for those teeth. Second before the first. That's right. No, obviously, Mike wouldn't give his child a rock to chew on. You wouldn't give it him. He wouldn't give his child poison or something like that. Why? Because even though he and every other father in here is a fallen, broken man, corrupted by the fall of Adam in the garden, we still love our children. And if nothing else, our intuition kicks in to do them good when it's in our ability to do them good. Of course... We wouldn't give them that. Also, if a son or a daughter were to ask for a stone or a serpent, would a caring father grant this wish and lead the child to his folly? How many of you parents in here have ever had a parent, ever had a, a child ask for something that you knew they did not need? Not only they didn't need it, how many of you have ever had your children, especially if you had teenage children, argue with you that the thing they wanted was best for them and you knew that it would lead to their destruction? Did you give in? No. You did not give in. Why? Because you knew better. You knew better. Regardless of what the 18-year-old going on 38 thought, you knew better. And you wouldn't give them what they wanted no matter how vehemently they asked for it, right? They could cry. They could try to manipulate. They could try to deceive. They could pitch a fit. They could threaten. They could do whatever, but you weren't going to give in because you love your child too much. Neither will our God give us what is harmful to us. Because of our sins, we have a reason to fear that he would. But because of his character, God will be better to us than our sins deserve. God is so good that he lovingly grants what we ask for rightly, and he wisely denies what we ask for that would harm us. We must ask, seek, and knock as we are commanded, trusting not in our own ability to do so perfectly, but in our Father's wisdom to answer perfectly. I think that's one thing that holds us back. Sometimes you ever had a feeling like you just didn't know exactly what to pray for? Yes. God does not answer your prayers based on your ability to pray well or know exactly what to pray for. Let me tell you something. I will quote Rich Mullins here. You never understand what you're praying for. God does not answer your prayers based on your understanding, but in his wisdom, he lovingly answers our prayers. Why? Because he's our father. He just knows better. 
We must trust in all our asking and seeking and knocking that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? We have to know that if we who are fallen and evil at our core know how to give good things to our children, our Father in heaven who is perfect, one, knows how to give much better. Two, he's always inclined to give you much better. So much so that we can say with the psalmist, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He loves us so much more than even our earthly parents that if your mom and dad abandon you, Father God sweeps in to take you in as his own. And three, he has infinitely greater resources to bless his children from. He wants to do you better. He knows how to do you better. And he can do you better than anyone else ever in creation. For the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Or to put it even more in even more substantial terms, as Luke put it, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He won't just give us physical things, Sam. He wants to give us the greatest spiritual thing. He wants to put his own very nature within us. If he'll give his son for us and then he'll put his own very nature within us as the earnest down payment on our soul until the day of redemption, to the day of Jesus returning, what else will he not give us? If he's given us the million dollars, why wouldn't he give you one more? Right? Knowing this, we must approach God in prayer asking boldly. We must fervently support our prayers with seeking and we must brazenly increase our asking to the point of knocking and yes, banging on the door and we must end each exchange with our Father in trust saying, not my will but yours be done. When we meet these conditions of asking and seeking and knocking, our Lord guarantees that we will not be left empty-handed. He guarantees you're not going to be left empty-handed. You don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to pray in concordance with, or in accordance excuse me, with what Jesus says to do in prayer and be left empty-handed. It's not going to happen. It's just not. Jesus says in verse 8, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. This receives and finds and opens. They are in perfect tense form, and these are promises. In the heart and mind of our Father and Lord, regardless of how you feel when you uh, meet the condition of a conditional promise, then the promise becomes a fact. What that means is within the realm of heaven, once you meet the condition that Father God has given you, it's not that you earn anything. It's not that you go out and move some mountain and you impress God to the point. It's like, okay, you've earned it like you run a race and you earn a, an award. That's not the way it works. What it means is, is that God wants to give you so much better than you are accepting or receiving from him. This is just the way that he's ordained to do it. He wants to give you blessing, but he wants your heart in giving it to you. So rather than letting us be mere patrons to a business, he wants us to come longingly and beggingly, but also trustingly to him, not as a merchant, but as a father, as a daddy. And when we come that way, then regardless of how much blessing he pours out on us, the blessing doesn't own us, the his heart owns us. You see? He wants us to have the relationship first, then the blessing can't be a danger. The blessing becomes a danger when we're lacking in the relationship. That's why he commands, no, you ask and you keep asking. You seek and you keep seeking. You knock and you keep knocking. Why? Because we're not at his beck and call. He gives when our heart is ready to receive it. 
You ever thought about the fact maybe we don't, we, maybe when, when it says we ask, but we don't receive because we ask wrongly, maybe it means not that you're asking for the wrong thing. Maybe it means that you're not ready to receive the right thing yet because your heart's not ready because you would make a god or an idol out of the thing instead of the one who gives the thing. Just something to think about. But in Jesus' teaching, we see that when we meet the condition of this promise, when we have gone through the avenue that God our Father has ordained for us to receive everything that we'll ever need, it becomes a solid fact in heaven. Though we might not have received it yet in this earth, the fact that it is ours is solid and concrete in the heart and mind of God. The thing that sits in a state of will be becomes are. The things that sit in a state of will be become, they are. They just now are. Though we may not instantly see the fulfillment of these promises, in God's mind, when we ask, seek, and knock, they are currently granted. The thief asked rightly that Christ would remember him in his kingdom. Jesus on this earth pronounced that he would be with him in paradise in a future sense because in the throne room of his father, it was already a granted fact. There was no doubt in the throne room of God the Father that the thief would be in the presence of Christ in paradise that day. So Christ could say it with absolution. We must factor this into our thinking and believing and then ask ourselves a few questions. I just I had a few questions that I thought to myself as I was going through this or God was taking me through this this week. I want you just to ponder them to yourself as we close. We ask the question, why did the loss in our families and our community remain lost? Why is that? We have a lot of theological reasons for that, but I think this has a lot to do with what we're talking about too. Why did the lost in our families and why did the lost people in our community, some literally within a golf ball shot from where you're sitting right now, why do they remain lost? Why will our children, why will your children be ravaged by the vilest elements of our society? Why am I not more holy? Why am I not more desirous of God's will and all good things that he commands? Why do we not experience revival in our church and in our town and in our nation the way that we all really know we should? Why do I not see more fruit in my life? And why will I have so much hay and wood and straw to answer for as the fire of God passes over in the day of judgment and be left with so few gold and silver and precious jewels? Why is my marriage not better? Why am I not a peacemaker? There's so many other questions, millions of other questions that we all could and probably should ask. Why? You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You have not found because you have not sought. Or you have not sought with all your heart. Brother, it has not been opened to you because you have not knocked and you have not kept knocking until it was opened. That may be hard to swallow. That's still true. And it has to be swallowed. For me and you. So what do, we, what do we do in reply to these things? Well, we have three options. First of all, please listen to me. Your first option is that you can become offended and you can bristle up and you can go home hard-hearted and unchanged. You can do that. 
Your second option is that you can remain apathetic and go home unmotivated and scarcely proven to be alive, spiritually speaking. You can do that. Your third option is that we can all repent. For the sake of your fruitfulness and your reward and your own joy, for the sake of the souls that God wants to reach through you and through your prayers, for the sake of this church and this town, for the sake of your own family and all that you hold dear, and most importantly, for the sake of the name of Jesus by which we have been saved, I hope and pray we repent. And if you're sitting here tonight and you would say, well, Brian, you talked a lot about that's what a child of God is supposed to do. A child of God can come banging on the door. A child of God can ask and keep asking, can seek and keep seeking, can knock and keep knocking. But I'm not sure that I'm a child of God. God gives a promise for you in this too. In Luke's gospel, Luke 11, I think it's verse 13, he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the... Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If you've not been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, if you've not been born again, you must seek in this way too. You say, well, I prayed a prayer one time and my life didn't change. Pray again. I've prayed a hundred times my life didn't change. Pray again. Well, it doesn't work that way, Brian. You go and you say a prayer of salvation and God saves you. No, maybe not. Maybe God has a day of salvation for everybody and maybe you just need to pray again. Maybe you're young or maybe you're old or maybe you've lied to yourself and you've tried to, you know, you've tried to quiet the fears at night whenever you lay awake in bed at night and you realize that your life really does not line up and you have no fruit whatsoever that proves that you're born again except for the fact that you come and every now and then you hold down a pew or every now and then you go to youth group or every now and then you come on a Wednesday night so you're on fire for Christ because you came on a Wednesday night. But other than that, you have none of those things in your life and it really bothers you and deep down at your core, you know that you really don't belong to the one who says that when I come into your life, I make you a new creature and you're not anything like what you used to be. If you know that's not you, pray again. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock, bang on the door of heaven to the degree that you would bang on the door of the ark if the floodwaters were rising around you. Because that's quite literally the situation that some of us may be in. I don't know that. I just felt led to say that. Keep asking. You have a promise. I didn't make this up. The God of all, who, all creation who gave His Son to save you says this. Ask and it will be given to you. If your earthly fathers who are evil know how to do good things to their children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven freely give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Bank on that promise and ask. And keep asking.